until a few years ago, the, the sort of data within the podcasting industry was very limited. It's gotten a lot better. And, you know, we were facing a lot of pain points and challenges on the production side of our business, because when you're working with the PwCs of the world, you can't just get away with giving them download and unique listener metrics. Like that's just not going to be enough. They're looking for Google Analytics level data. And if you can't provide it to them, then they cannot justify the creation of new production budgets. This is Podcast Perspectives, a show about the latest news in the podcast industry and the people behind it. I'm your host, Jeff Umbro, founder and CEO of The Podglomerate. Today, I am speaking with Fatima Zaidi, founder and CEO of Quill, the award-winning branded podcast agency. Quill specifically works with Fortune 500 companies like PwC, Microsoft, and Expedia, among many others. Last year, Quill also launched a new hosting and analytics platform called Cohost, that has been providing brands with tailored demographic data for their shows. On the show today, we will dive into the idea of how to measure success for B2B podcasting, why Fatima launched a podcast hosting platform this late in the game, and we also spent some time digging into the Canadian podcast scene. Let's get to it. I want to talk to you about what is Quill and like how you came to actually start that company. Quill is a full service production agency. We work with Fortune 500 brands to create their branded podcast. So very specific niche. We work with the PwCs, the Expedias, the McKinsey's of the world. And we do operate in a very specific sort of, I would say, vertical. And then we also are responsible for audience growth for their podcasts as well. And so typically our clients are looking for us to do complete end-to-end work from creating a high quality production all the way to bringing in their qualified audience. Until a few years ago, the, the sort of data within the podcasting industry was very limited. It's gotten a lot better. And, uh, you know, we were facing a lot of pain points and challenges on the production side of our business, because when you're working with the PwCs of the world, you can't just get away with giving them download and unique listener metrics. Like that's just not going to be enough. They're looking for Google Analytics level data. And if you can't provide it to them, then they cannot justify the creation of new production budgets. So we went and built Cohost, which, you know, is really the first platform, at least at the time, that was servicing brands who are podcasting to provide you with very premium analytics on your listeners. So things like age, gender, household income, occupation, what platforms are they coming in from, what companies are listening to your podcast, revenue sizes, industries. And that's really the kind of sort of data that they're looking or at least our clients are looking for to sort of inform success and then from there also justify continuing to podcast. And so Quill is a tech-enabled agency and our product is called Cohost. I have a thousand questions based on what you just said, so I'll just take them one at a time. I wanted to start by just talking to you about what it looks like when a brand comes to you asking for a podcast. Are they aware that they're asking for like a B2B podcast when they come through the door? Like, What does that process look like? You know, it's a, it's a bit of an education process just because I think that, you know, oftentimes we get the vanity projects, which we won't take on. The CEO trying to become a, a an influencer with no sort of thought or process around what business objective the podcast is going to serve. It doesn't always turn out to be a B2B show. And I think our team is actually very particular about creating podcasts that don't necessarily sound like the shows that are out there today. So we love doing narrative shows for corporations and, and even B2B companies. And we love it when companies allow us the creative flexibility to create content that isn't dry or sounds like a sales infomercial. But there is a bit of a, and when I say a bit, I mean a very long sort of education 
process and learning curve. One, we don't hodgepodge shows together. You can't have a podcast up and running that's a high quality show in just a few weeks. And two, nobody wants to hear another interview style show with two people talking for 30 minutes straight. So I think it's a bit of a education on formats and what really resonates with listeners. Another education component is not to hodgepodge a show together and really take the time to invest and do it properly. And then the third education piece is setting aside enough time and resources for marketing the show, not just production. I, I think that a lot of B2B slash branded podcasts really do need to define what they're hoping to do before they actually go through the execution part. So how do you do that? Totally. So we, for example, we have a client, he only interviews CMOs. It's an interview style show. The entire objective of the podcast is to target chief marketing officers to provide value to that space or very specific industry vertical. And honestly, the show does really well because it doesn't have a lot of competition in terms of other podcasts that are similar. And two, because it's such a niche audience, we have found that people seek out the content. It has created some sort of a natural community around the podcast. And every CMO out there, whether it's in the US or Canada or global, wants to either be on the show, is listening to the content, is engaging with the show in some capacity. And so to your point, I think identifying the business objective, which you can do very early on in the podcast strategy, thinking about what does success look like, thinking about how you want to position your show in the market, what is your competitive matrix, what other similar shows are already out there, filling the same objective that you are, and how are you going to be the first, the best, or different? I guess this is a, a maybe silly question, but how often do people have those goals in mind before they come to you versus after? I don't think that's a silly question at all. In fact, I think it's silly that people don't have the goal in mind when they come to us. So many times, either they don't know what success looks like or what the objective of creating the show is. And if you don't know why you're creating a podcast, I don't know if it's the right strategy for you. And then the second sort of surprising sort of factor is how many people want to start a podcast because they think it's going to make them famous or give them, you know, some sort of industry clout. And absolutely, I think podcasting is a really great way to build brand awareness, thought leadership, position yourself as a subject matter expert. But if you want to become famous and become an influencer, then you probably want to go out and hire a publicist or a PR team that, you know, can turn you into an influencer. I don't know if podcasting is the right strategy. And uh, sometimes those conversations can be a little bit difficult, the, the CEO vanity projects. How do people find you or how do brands find you when they're looking to make their next project or podcast? That is a very good question. And that is actually a question that comes up all the time. I mean, it's so interesting how many people in the industry think I have like a PR background um, <laughs> when I don't. I don't have a PR or marketing background. I'm not a PR person at all. However, I do recognize the importance of being out there in the community through speaking engagements, through volunteer work. I'm the chair for Sick Kids Hospital. I teach at University of Toronto. I teach podcasting there. Like I'm doing Quill's PR myself. So I pitch journalists day in, day out, trying to get coverage. And that's actually how our clients are finding us. It's through conferences. It's through articles that we're popping up in. It's through my LinkedIn. It's through one head to get a time by keeping my network warm. It is a grind. Building a business and then being responsible for all of the outbound sales is, it's a lot of work. And I think that if people are looking for overnight success or instant gratification, they're not going to find it just because similar to building a podcast audience, it is a marathon, not a sprint. And 
I would say I probably bring in about 60 to 70% of our sales just through like our network. And then the rest is, I would say, um, referrals, word of mouth. The landscape is not what once what it used to be. I mean, when we launched Quill, there were not a ton of competitive agencies and production teams out there. And now there's a production team for every sort of vertical. If you're looking for a not-for-profit podcast, there are like five experts. If you're looking for a corporate show, there's like 10 experts. If you're looking for an indie show in the influencer space, there's like 10 production agencies. Wasn't the case when we started Quail, so we've had to really adapt our sales technique. It's funny. My next question had to do with the marketing and audience development specialty that you have for B2B podcasts. I just read an article where you were talking about how this is a service that you provided for a long time as kind of like a full stack asset or service to folks that you were helping to produce the podcast for. And now it's kind of a one-off service because there was a demand for it. What have you found since you've started offering this as a service externally or, or to third parties? From an outside perspective, it looks like you're you're pretty successful. It's interesting because I feel like what we constitute as successful isn't necessarily what everybody else or brands constitute as successful. So if we have a brand that comes to us and says, we don't care about the qualification of the listener. We just want mass listener reach. We just want, we, we only care about the download count. We won't take that project off as a standalone because you're better off just working with the ad sales networks directly. Like if you just want 50,000 listeners brought to you over a, like a two week period, then go to CastBox, go to Player FM, go to Mopod. Like you should just work with them directly and they'll get you your numbers. Where the project makes sense for us is if you're looking for very qualified listeners to come through. You're not just concerned with the download count, but you're concerned about the listener being the right listener. And the reason they want to work with us is because we have a very fleshed out marketing team that is committed to organic, owned, earned. And of course, paid is a very small portion of that. Maybe 5% of our efforts is going to be on paid. We all know paid is easy. You just allocate the money and the vendors do all of the work and it brings in the numbers. But that doesn't necessarily bring in the right numbers or the right listeners. And we know it doesn't. We see all of the traffic coming through on co-host and like 80% of the time it's bot downloads or people who are dropping off in the first five minutes. It takes a lot of effort and it is a grind. You know, it is a lot of work to be doing PR pitching and, and, and playing the long game essentially. But what it does is it actually brings in your qualified audience and listeners. And we really think that the marketing or the future podcast marketing needs to be paid balanced with a lot of these organic tactics. So we're now offering it as a standalone. It's expensive because it's a lot of hours put in. It's a lot of work, but we're not about the instant gratification and like hitting 100,000 listeners overnight because like for us, success is actually hitting your ideal listener profile. And how do you qualify a qualified listener? Like what, what are you looking at? What tells you if it's somebody that you're aiming to reach? So this is where a co-host actually comes in. It makes our life a lot easier. We, so first we have like a whole list of engagement metrics that we're measuring. So average consumption rate for the show, but also for each individual episode, we know it needs to be in the 80th percentile. If they're dropping off in the first five to 10 minutes, they're clearly not engaged with your content. We're measuring loyal listeners, repeat listeners, are people staying on for the entire season? And then beyond engagement metrics and where the drop-offs are happening, we are also measuring things like demographic data. So are we hitting the right age profile? Are we hitting the right household income profile? We can give you metrics like family, pets, 
do they have children? What are their social media habits, interests, hobbies, and lifestyles? So we look at all of that and we create like a bit of a, a brief for who the listener is. So we measure all of the demographic data. And then on the flip side for B2B shows, they really care about the companies that are listening for a couple of reasons. One, a lot of B2B shows are looking to build a better relationship with their customers or their stakeholders. And so if we can give them a list of all the companies that are listening to their podcast, we're essentially showing them whether or not they're qualified target audiences. They also use those lists and convert them into sales pipelines for themselves. So if you know Walmart is listening and they know that that is a potential really good lead for them, then they go out and reach out to Walmart and build a relationship with them, ask them to be a guest on the show, show them the stats on how many employees at Walmart are listening to the podcast, which we can show you on co-host. So I would say those are sort of the metrics that we're looking at to sort of identify success. We don't really care about the listener account. We had uh, Harry Morton on the show from Lower Street a while back, and he had this idea, which I've heard elsewhere, but your show may only have 500 qualified listeners. And, and if you can get 400 of them, that's a huge success. Oh, 100%. Think about 400 people in your living room. Like, think about how many people that is. <laughs> if you're reaching 400 of the right people, then ultimately, why does it matter if 10,000 bots are listening to your show or 10,000 17-year-olds that are not your qualified audience? Harry and I very much are cut from the same cloth in terms of like what we think matters in the industry from a measurement perspective. And something that Don Meisner and I talked about a very long time ago, and it like still like resonates with me today is not enough brands are using the cost per minute of human attention as an ROI metric. And podcasting is in such a unique position where we can actually calculate that and use that as an engagement metric. So that is kind of the work that we're doing at Coast. We're really hoping that the industry kind of follows suit. And I think that while we keep prioritizing ad sales, it's going to be very hard for us to break through the noise. So I think that what you guys are doing is so cool and it's so interesting technologically how you did it. So I wanted to spend a minute just talking about like, how did you stand up a technology platform on top of the agency that you were running? Yeah, it's um, definitely aged me like very, <laughs> very drastically because the agency took off and we knew that we sort of wanted to build this product. I just didn't see a need to bring in an external capital. We tapped into a lot of grant funding, of course. In Canada, if you are a female founder creating a new technology, which we did, this technology has never been created before. And not only has it never been created before, I'm a BIPOC founder. So that, again, there's like very big buckets of grant funding available to people like myself. I will say that definitely lots of challenges with bootstrapping. People ask all the time, if you could do it again, would you raise capital? I, I probably still wouldn't raise capital because A, we just didn't need the money. Like the agency was able to fund the product. B, we had no pressure internally to like make investors happy. So product is a bit of a slow burn. And the only people that you're accountable to is myself. I'm the only stakeholder on the cap table. And so if we don't have a good month or if we make a really big mistake, and goodness, there's been so many mistakes along the way that we have made. All we do is think about what the key learning is, how we're going to ensure that it doesn't happen again, and how we can move forward. But there were some roadblocks for sure. We can't grow as quickly as we want. We're competing with the casteds and the megaphones of the world. We can't compete in the same playing field as them. They have way more runway to do what they can with their product. And then Megaphone is backed by Spotify. So, and Omni is backed by Triton. So all of these players that we're competing with are backed by incredible 
I would say revenue sources. And so ultimately we do have challenges in that what we're doing, we're being very scrappy, we have a very small dev and product in our ID team. Um, we're not able to move as quickly as we want, but I would say at least we get to enjoy the process. I love that. As, as a bootstrapped founder myself, every day I kick myself yeah. for like, you know, not going out and taking financing. At the same time, I'm just like, wow, that's the best thing that you could have ever done for all of the reasons that you just articulated. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that you're able to get a lot of demographic data for your listeners. Can you walk me through how that works with co-host? Okay, so when we when someone listens to to the podcast, we get a log, it pings our assess feed. And what we do is we take those sort of logs and we send them off to our third party data enrichment partner. We have actually a couple data enrichment partners we're working with. One of them is Clearbit. And what they do is they obviously identify the user agent, the location, the IP address, and then with census level data, they match who that person is and send us back the demographic data. And it's all automated. So we're not like sitting here manually taking spreadsheets and uploading it. When I say they send it back, they send it back to our system and it displays directly within our platform. So typically both for B2B analytics, company level data and demographic level data, we work with third-party enrichment partners who with census level data matching are able to give us a verification on who that listener is and the profile of that person. There are a few competitors of yours where you can access similar data sets. And yes. I've seen co-host, I've done a demo. The data is similar, but also very unique. And it does give you, and I imagine most brands, like kind of the information that you are looking for specifically. You mentioned earlier, like, you know, somebody who works at Walmart, for example, listening to the show. That's really valuable if your company is selling like shipping logistic optimization software or something. It's a terrible example, forgive me, but... Uh, <laughs> no, actually, I think it's a great example because usually it is those examples. You are competing with folks like Omni or Casted or Megaphone. How are you convincing brands or, or anyone to use Cohost instead of one of those platforms? Not that it's not like, you know, a better or worse product, but it is difficult to look at this bootstrapped company and say... I'm going to stick with those guys as opposed to, you know, this Spotify backed company. Yeah. So interestingly enough, we no longer have that challenge because co-host is not just a hosting platform anymore. Recently, only a month ago, we launched our prefix. And so you can actually use an Omni or a Megaphone or a Lipsyn or whatever and still use our product as the prefix. So similar to how brands were using Chartable as like an extension of whatever provider they were using, we're now operating in that space. Luckily, Chartable got acquired. They're, they're sort of no longer in this space. And we've kind of come in and replaced whatever it is that they were doing before the acquisition happened. And truthfully, the innovation stopped. So I, I actually am like a huge fan of Omni. Like I, I think Omni is such, I'm so impressed with Sharon and what she's built. And to be honest, if somebody was just interested in looking for a prefix option, I would say absolutely host with Omni and come to us for that additional demographic and B2B analytics enrichment. And we just provide you with 
an added layer of the, the data that, you know, other hosting providers aren't providing at this current moment. In terms of hosting, I would say you can definitely host with us. It's not a priority or mandatory. And in fact, we've been seeing that for political reasons, a lot of the like, iHeartRadio is now a customer of ours, but they couldn't host with us because of course they're owned or they own Omni. So, so they have to be on Omni, but they still wanted to use this as a prefix option. And if you're like an indie podcast creator, for example, and you are looking to monetize on your show, and that is your prime sort of objective, then I actually wouldn't recommend co-host for hosting. I would recommend that you go with an Omni or a Megaphone that have very robust ad plugin networks and you know dynamic ad insertion processes. We have those, but we're certainly not optimized for indie content creators. We are 100% built for brands and monetization is not a priority for the brands that we are working with. So I think that it's less about how do we convince them and more so we serve a very specific market sector and it's very clear that we are the sort of go-to platform for like Fortune 500 brands. If you fall into any other category, I will personally give you a list of recommendations on who you should be using outside of us. And luckily now we don't really have that challenge because of the prefix option. When I did my demo, they gave me like a little hint that the prefix was coming and I was so happy because, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's it's a big deal to move your show from platform to platform if you have, you know, a big robust offering or, or a lot of shows or something like that. Separate from that, are, do you have any plans to launch attribution tracking or anything like that? Most definitely. We are currently in the process of, um, we're almost done. Campaign attribution data is really important to us. We obviously have tracking links so we can see where the listeners are coming in from, but measuring drop-off points, for example, for each episode, so episode consumption, show consumption, all of that data is extremely important. And we're in the process of building that out right now. I wanted to spend a minute talking about the Canadian podcast scene. It's interesting to me because there's a lot of organizations that operate in Canada, more than most people would probably imagine. Outside of the CBC, you have you know, Quill and Co-host, you have Char Audio, Pacific Content, Rogers, which owns Pacific Content. Yeah, Frequency Network. There's so many. Triton. Triton, yeah. You mentioned earlier before the interview there's a big difference between Canadian and U.S. podcasting. Like, how would you define that? Okay, so I'll start off with the good and then I'll go into the bad. So the good is everything that you just listed. We have so much talent in the podcasting industry that is located in Canada. It's actually pretty comical. We laugh about this so much. We're like, all of the awards are being won by like 80% Canadian companies and Canadian talent. And when I think about this, some of the smartest people in an industry, a lot of them happen to be Canadian. Yeah. But all these companies that you just mentioned, Jar Audio, Pacific Content, Bob Kane is Canadian. Of course, like Advertised Cast is a Canadian office. Sharon is now based out of Montreal. I consider her to be an honorary Canadian. We're all really good friends. And, and not only are we really good friends, we're all competitors who work really closely together to fill competitive gaps. And I think by proxy of having that mindset that competitors can work really closely together and support each other and, and actually doing so, we have helped move the industry forward and like propelled each other up. Like I, I would say a lot of these competitors just have really helped us do better at our jobs and, and vice versa. We're always looking for a way to give back. On the, the con side of the industry, I would say a lot of Canadian companies are doing the majority of their business in the US and globally because 
A, Canadian companies are very traditional compared to American companies. So even when I look at the genetic makeup of our customers, we're like 97% American and then 3% Canadian, mostly because Canadian companies don't want to make the investment that it's going to cost to do a show properly. And they would rather, like we talked about earlier, hodgepodge a show together or work with freelancers. So I think that's a really big detriment in this space is that Canadian companies are very traditional, don't want to spend a lot, have smaller budgets, and also the market size. You know, we're looking at 300 million Americans versus 30 million Canadians. And so by proxy of that, I would say the innovation has kind of been stagnated in Canada versus in the US. They're early adopters and willing to adopt the medium and also invest in the industry. And that's yeah. part of the reason that we're like half Canadian, half American. We have our sort of legs in, in both countries for that reason. But if it was truly just based on revenue and financials and our customer base, we would have been an exclusively American company and offshore a very long time ago. Thank you so much to Fatima for joining us on the show today. You can check out more about what she is up to at quillpodcasting.com. For more podcast-related news, info, and takes, you can follow me on Twitter at Jeff Umbro. Podcast Perspectives is a production of The Podglomerate. If you are looking for help producing, distributing, or monetizing your podcast, you can find us at thepodglomerate.com. Shoot us an email at listen at thepodglomerate.com or follow us on all social platforms at Podglomerate. This episode was produced by Chris Boniello and Henry Lavoie. And thank you to our marketing team, Joni Deutsch, Madison Richards, Morgan Swift, Annabella Panna, and Vanessa Ullman. And a special thank you to Dan Christo. Thanks for listening, and I will catch you next week.